Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We're working our way. How many people have been doing their homework? Remember what you're supposed to do? Read it once. First seven verses once a day, all week. All right. Yeah, one through eight. You know, get the, just read them. And here's what's interesting. If you do that for like seven days, you almost memorize it, don't you? Read verses one through seven while we're going through that section every day. What's that? Yeah, can you hear it? You need it louder? Is that better? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I got to bring my own um, sound system here because they got it here, but you have to set it up and holy cats. Yeah, I, I want to make sure. Wait a minute. It would probably help if I hit the right one. How's that? Is that all right? Yeah. All right. So we're in, we're in Romans chapter 1, and um, Paul just introduces the book again in, in epistles of that day. You put your name first so you know who it is. So in that case, if you didn't like the person, you didn't have to read the whole thing to find out it's somebody you didn't want to listen to. Um, but he says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, and we talked about how that means slave. It's not a servant. It's not voluntary. Was Paul in the ministry because he volunteered to do it? No. He was conscripted, wasn't he? He was, he was called. He was called. And the idea of being called there is that it was not voluntary. He was on his way to kill Christians, and Christ showed up and said, nope, you're in my army now. He was drafted. All right? Yeah. And... Uh, he said, I was called to be an apostle, apostle with a big A. What is the apostle with the big A? What do they do? They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. What's more than that? They were, eyewitnesses. they were eyewitnesses and they were the foundation of what? The church. They're the ones that wrote them a lot of the New Testament. All right? Or they were instrumental in writing it. Like, even though Luke wasn't an apostle, who did he talk to? Well, Mark talked to Peter, but probably he probably talked to Paul, to John, to, to the other apostles. Um, Luke said he did research. So who did he talk to? He probably talked to whoever he could get a hold of there, you know. And he had two years to pull it off because Paul was in Caesarea Philippi for two years. You know, so they were the foundation of the church. They were the, the building blocks. And he was set apart for the gospel of God, the good news. And we talk about what good news is there. Because, see, every time we use the word gospel, we got the four spiritual laws in the back of our mind. But in reality, the word means good news. And then you have to ask the question, well, good news about what? What is the context of the good news? Okay? And the good news here is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So... What we have here is a whole mini-theology of the doctrine of the Bible. God spoke through prophets in what? The Holy Scriptures. Now, what Holy Scriptures is Paul talking about? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. He didn't have the New, right? In fact, he was in the business of writing some of the New. It was not yet canonized. There was no official New Testament at this point. This was all Old Testament Scripture. And he said this gospel of God was found where? Where'd you find it? The 
in the Holy Scriptures. This is not new stuff. Paul's saying, I didn't come up with this on my own. This was not concocted by a bunch of us. This was in the Holy Scriptures. And I was thinking about that this week. <clears throat> See, when you, when you listen to the secular scholarship on this thing, and you can find that on the History Channel, Discovery, Science, National Geographic, or you just go to Oberlin College and take a couple of religion courses, what you find is that the secular scholarship has no idea where Christianity came from. They don't know why it is the way it is. They have no real explanation for it. Okay? And what I mean by that is to them, what you have back in the early time here is a bunch of competing ideas and theologies. And what happened is out of all of this chaos, all this theological chaos, you have this thing sort of morph and grow and come into what we have now as Christianity. Well, it's, it's, it's a theological equivalency to the cosmos, you know. But the idea is there's theological chaos. I remember right, reading authors back in my school days, my college days, they're, they're trying to figure out where did Jesus get his theology. They don't know where he came up with this stuff. The idea that he's actually the son of God is not something even to be considered, of course. But they don't know where he came. And then, and then, of course, the idea is we don't know who Jesus is because we can't trust the New Testament because, after all, it was concocted. It's, a, it's like Babe the Blue Ox and you know, all of these mythological stories and things, and it sort of like morphed and grew into what we got today. But, see, in their mind, this Christianity that we have today, the gospel, the good news, it's just the thing that happened to win the day. But there were other equally valid possibilities that could have happened. It's sort of like, why is it that we look the way, and to an evolutionist, why is it that we look the way we do today? Well, that's just the way it worked out, didn't it? But in their, in their worldview, there's nothing to keep us from having four legs and walking like a dog. Or there's nothing to keep us from having two heads or five arms or... There, it's just, this just happened to be the form that won the day at the end of the day. And the same thing theologically, their idea is what we see in Christianity today, what we have, was the end product of a bunch of deals cut in a smoke-filled back room with the apostles. And you had the theology of James, you had the theology of Peter, you had the theology of Paul, and they're arguing, and what happened is that over time this version that we have now coalesced out of all of this chaos. And that's what we got. But what does Paul say about that? Right here. Where did it come from? The Holy Scriptures. This is not us. This was all written down before they were even That's right. That's right. And, and, and Paul is saying, the theology that I preach and I'm going to articulate in this book, it's not something I came up with. It's not something that James and John and Peter and I, we cut a deal and came up with this and thought this would be a cool religion to have. Well, it's ultimately the inspired word of God. Well, of course, well, if you're a liberal scholar, you can't believe that. Because after all, we know that that's just a concoction of Jewish mythological fables and whatever. 
But what Paul is saying is the origin of the gospel, the good news, is the Holy Scriptures. Genesis 3.15. What do you find in Genesis 3.15? The first real prophecy, they say it's the Proto-Evangelion, they call it. It's the first mention that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15. This is right at the fall. What is God promising right at the beginning? There's a way back. What did he tell Cain and Abel? There's a way to approach me. What do you do? You bring a sacrifice. God, here's the thing. God's always provided a way back. And he says, if you approach me on my terms, I'm there with my arms wide open, ready to receive you. But you come on your own way. It's like Christ said, you're like a thief and a robber. You crawl over the wall. There was even a hint of the gospel before Genesis 3.15, but you have to know the Bible well enough to... Anyway, the hint is God having to kill an animal to give them skins to wear yes. a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, that would probably freak you out to see that God kill an animal. You've never seen that before. But God said that, that you know, your works, your fig leaves aren't going to cut it. We need something better than that. And from the very early point, God's always provided a way back. In the tabernacle, that was a way back. God never said, go away and don't bother me. He always had a way back for people. Now, was it clear how this was all going to necessarily work out in the end? No, it wasn't. But in Jeremiah, you have the, of the, new the, pro the promise of the new covenant, right? I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. No longer are you going to teach everything, but it's going to be within you. That's the new covenant. God's always provided way. And it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God had it there. And still one of the great passages on this, of course, is the road to Emmaus. Christ appears to the two disciples who are on the road going to Emmaus. And, they, of course, they didn't know who he was. He asked them what's going on, and they said, where have you been? And they said, we thought the Messiah, we thought he was the one, and he's dead. And Christ said, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Is it in the Old Testament? Yeah, it is. It's there. And what did Christ do? He beginning at the law and the prophets, he showed them how Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. It's all there. It was promised beforehand. So this is not something that Paul came up with. This is not some idea that he had in the dark of the night. He didn't dream this thing up. He didn't sit down with a blank sheet of paper and draw something up new. This was in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his, what, son, who was descended from David. This good news concerned God's son who was descended from David. Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is seen as who? The son of David, where did that come from? Well, you got the Davidic covenant, right? 
First Sam, I always get them backwards. It's First Samuel 7 or Second Samuel 7. It's one of those, it's 7. And what did God promise David? He said, I'm going to promise a king on the throne forever. And from David will become, will come the, messi the Messiah, the anointed one. And was Christ descended from David? Yes, he was. He was descended from David through Mary. And the legal line came through Joseph, but even though Joseph wasn't his father, right? Joseph was in the Davidic line. And that's why you have the genealogies, by the way, in Matthew and Luke. It's to prove that Jesus is the son of David. There's no question about that. I got I to gotta look at my, I got face ID so it recognizes my face. It's really disconcerting sometimes because I try this and say, man, you're good looking today. Um, Apple has face ID. I, can't, I don't know if you know that. You can just look at it and it knows who you are. Which is sort of cool. You don't have to remember your passwords. Because I got multiple password disorder. MPD, they call it. And actually, it's my, in psychological terms, it's multiple personality disorder. I say, I got multiple password disorder. I can't keep track of all my passwords. Um, but it says here, he was, he was descended from David according to the flesh, but he was also declared to be, or it was proven to be, the Son of God by how? How do you know he was the Son of God? He rose again. The word there, declared, proharizo, means to, it's the horizon, it's the dividing line. What forever separated Christ from every other human being? As the Son of God, he rose again. Now, you can lay down your life, but you can't take it up again. Christ said, I can lay down my life, I can take it up again. He was, and what you have here is the theology of the, fancy word, hypostatic union. Christ is fully God, he's fully man. But he's not a mixture of either. Okay? He has a distinct human nature, a distinct divine nature. They're unmixed, they're distinct, and you don't, you're not going to figure that out, just go with it. You're not going to figure it out. You're going to get yourself into trouble. If you try to do that. And listen, according to the spirit of holiness, who's the, what's the spirit of holiness? Holy spirit. Holy spirit. Now this is important to understand. When Christ, you know, and, and when we talk about the incarnation, a lot of people have trouble saying, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, then how come he got tired? How would you answer that? He was fully human. Okay. How is it that he did not know the day or hour of his coming? In his incarnation, he did what? He made himself in the external form of man. He looked like one of us. Was he fully divine at the same time? Yeah, he was. But he limited his knowledge. Now, I limit my knowledge, but I don't do that intentionally. Right? <laughs> We forget things. Christ limited his knowledge. He also uh, said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So all the things that Christ did, he did because that was God's will for him to do that. He didn't do anything on his own. Now, did he have the divine prerogative as a second member of the Trinity to do what he pleased? 
Yes, he did. But he was obedient. But he's obedient unto death. He emptied himself, the kenosis, the, the emptying of Christ. He emptied his prerogative. He didn't lose his prerogative. He just said, okay, I am God. I am second member of the Trinity. But for the purpose of the incarnation, I'm going to limit what I do to the will of the Father who's going to guide me. And in whose power did Christ do all of his miracles? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what you see here, the spirit of holiness. So when the Pharisees came up and said, well, you're doing, you're, all the miracles you do are by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, what was Christ's response to that? How can the devil cast out the devil? Yeah, you boys have crossed the line. You can speak evil of me, but if you speak evil of the Holy Spirit by ascribing the works that I'm doing to the power of the devil... There's no hope for you. That is the unpardonable sin, by the way. It's an, what we call unpardonable is a dispensational sin in the sense that you can't commit the unpardonable sin today because Christ isn't here today. Now, the people on TV will tell you that if you're not ascribing to all the whiz-bangery they're doing with all this junk and all this weirdness on TV, you're, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you're committing the unpardonable sin. No, you're not. Because they're not Jesus. They're not God. Christ is, or the, Paul is saying here, the things that, everything Christ did, he did by the power of the Spirit. After his baptism, he was driven by what? The Spirit into the desert. Did Christ have, in of himself, as a second member of the Trinity, the omnipotent power of the divine? Yes, he did. But he didn't use it. Whatever he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of holiness rose, the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel, the good news. We're going to explore the good news here, but understand something about the good news. The good news is not just believing a bunch of facts, right? It includes that, but it's not only that. I can have somebody show up at my door, knock on my door, say, hi, we, um, we're from such and such church down the road. I said, do you believe Jesus is God? Yes. Do you believe he died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? Yes. Do you believe that by placing your faith in Christ you can be a believer, yes. Do you believe that you'll go to heaven and be with God forever? Yes. What church are you from? Uh, we're from the Latter-day Saints. Mormons believe that. But what Jesus do they have? A created being. Actually, a procreated being. The firstborn son of Elohim with one of his many celestial wives. He, Christ is the firstborn. Satan is his half-brother. I don't think you knew that, right, in their system. And we're all half-brothers of Christ, by the way, just so you know. It's a bizarre theology, but see, they got facts. But the gospel of God is, or the gospel of Christ is more than just facts. You've got to get the right Christ who does the right thing. 
It's the person and work of Christ you got to get right. Both of those you got to get right. Does Catholicism have the right Jesus? Yes. yes. Do they have the right, what did Jesus do for me? No, they don't. They don't. They got the person right, but they don't have the work right. You got to get both of those right. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and Sammy quoted this last week, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, is it just, you just believe that Jesus died for you? Is that, is that all? What's implied, what's implied in him dying for you? That, that's, that's part of it. But if, when I say Jesus died for me, what am I implying? What, do I, what am I saying? He took my place. Why did he take my place? For what? Ah, I'm a sinner. I need some help. When you say Jesus died for you, implied in that is you have a problem, right? It's not specifically stated, but... If he died for me, that implies that I have a problem that he needs to die for, right? For all of sin. Well, for all of sin. So when we say that Jesus died for our sins, implied in that is a knowledge that you are a sinner, that you are under God's judgment, and that you can't do anything about it. Right? Yep. That's implied in that statement. It's not just he died for my sins. There needs to be a knowledge that I am a sinner, I'm under judgment, I can't save myself. So somebody did it for me. Yeah. Substitution, which by the way, again, I, I mentioned this. It's fallen on hard times. Um, there, there are a lot of so-called evangelicals out there denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the penal substitution. What do we mean by that? Jesus took my place. It's all in that, right? Hebrews, for by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But that's falling hard time. If you get a chance, I, I would recommend all of you sign up for a, a, a online streaming service called AGTV, American Gospel TV. It's six bucks a month. You can all afford that, I think. But they have some tremendous, yes, Eric, you can afford six dollars a month. Um, Oh, Pam. Pam can afford six bucks a month. All right. It's, it's six. It's $5.99. Six dollars a month. All right. AGTV. All right. And uh, they have a ton of really, this is like super, it's like YouTube for Christians. Can you get it through Apple TV? You can get through, you can get it, it's, uh, it's through the internet. Okay. All right. It's on the internet. Okay. Um, but they have a, they have a uh, movie on there. By the way, it's, it's, the guy who does it is, um, Brandon Kimber is over here in Cleveland. He did, a, he did um, this, he hosts this thing. But they got, they got MacArthur on there. They got um, Alistair Begg on there. They got, ton, they got th hundreds, and, if not thousands, of hours of good video content on there. Preaching, teaching, Sproul's on there. I mean, all kinds of good stuff was on there. Um, We're going to get to that. Okay. Okay. We're going to get to that. Okay. 
this was a detour. It's one of these rabbit trails we get on every once in a while in the class. But watch AGTV. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. It's five bucks a month, five, six dollars a month. But one of, the, one of the things I would like you to watch on there, there's a, there's, he's got two full-length movies. One is Christ Alone. It, it's, it's American Gospel, Christ Alone. There's the American Gospel, Christ Crucified. Christ Crucified is a must-watch for you all. Because he, he goes and explores this whole substitutionary atonement thing. And he shows how in evangelicalism at large, there's a lot of problems. I mean, there's a lot of people coming out saying God would never do this. Um, he would never have his son die for me. Listen, if Christ did not die for me, I'm sunk, right? That is the gospel, isn't it? But you've got some, what used to be you consider evangelical type, can't, Tony Campolo is one of those. I mean, back in the days I remember Tony Campolo. But some of these people are just saying, well, God would never send his son to die for us. I mean, that would, that's cosmic child abuse. God, could, God would never do that. Well, here's the question. Did Christ go to the cross kicking and screaming? He went voluntarily. He took my place. But yeah, that's a good thing. I would, I would strongly consider you do that. It's, it's really, it's, it's worth it. It's worth six bucks a month. And if after a while you don't like it, you just cancel your subscription. But there's just a lot of good stuff on there. But that's a good movie to watch. It's, it's, a, it's really a full-length documentary. It's two and a half hours of just full-length documentary on that. On the whole Christ taking our place, the substitutionary atonement. Really well done. Really good stuff in there. But... Um, so it, it, Jesus died for me. But then the other part of that, as Sammy said, is he was buried. What does that mean? Why, why does he have to be buried? To prove he died. He proved he died, right? It proved he's dead. I mean, he was buried for three days and three nights, right? Now understand what that means. It's any part of three days and three nights. But he was in the grave. He... He was laid in the tomb. And by the way, these Roman soldiers are experts in killing people, aren't they? So did they know he was dead? Yeah, because see, if he wasn't dead, what would happen to them? Yeah, yeah, you make sure, when, you, when you're tasked to execute a criminal, you make sure he was dead because you didn't want to take his place. Christ was dead, and then he rose again, didn't he? The resurrection. And what does the resurrection prove? And what does that prove? That he was God. That he was God, but what else does it prove? He defeated death. He defeated death, and what else does it prove? The same can happen. He can be trusted. It can happen to us. You're missing one thing. What else did it prove? What did it validate? It validated scripture, but it validated that his sacrifice was what? No. Acceptable. It proved that God accepted the sacrifice. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrection proves that everything he said is true and that his sacrifice is the sacrifice. Unlike the sheep or the cow. Yeah. They were killed and gone forever. Every year you had to kill another one, right? back to life. Every year you had to kill another one of those bugs. And that's what the writer of um, Hebrews is saying. He said, you know... In the Old Covenant, a remembrance was made of sin every year. In what way? Well, every year, what happened? Day of Atonement. 
but Christ by his one sacrifice for sin forever sat down. Now what one article of furniture was not in the tabernacle? A chair. Why isn't there why wasn't there a chair? You can't sit down because you're killing animals all day long. The average priest, when he went home, his wife said, what would you do today? He said, well, I killed 4,000 pigs. or uh, Not pigs, but 4,000 sheep. Not pigs, pigs. No, not pigs. I'm thinking bacon. You know, I had my bacon this morning. No, you don't do that. I slaughtered animals all day long. It was a bloody thing. I mean, you go to the, it was blood all over the place. Why is that? What's, Christ, what God trying, what's God trying to get across? There's a penalty for sin. There's a penalty for sin. It's death. And he wants to get across in the most ugly way possible. Christ paid my debt. And that is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again the third day. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. What's Grace. And what, what gives God the right to grant grace to me? Love. The crucifixion of Christ, the penalty is paid, and that allows God to extend grace. If there's no sacrifice, could God extend grace to me? Mm -mm. He could not extend grace. One of the things we're going to explore at some point, and I've got to figure out how to do this, is what's called the simplicity of God. Anybody hear about the simplicity of God? When we talk about the simplicity of God theologically, we're not saying God is simple. All right? What they mean by that is God is not, irre God is not reducible to parts. Let me try to explain that a little bit. It means that God does not have his wrath and his love in opposition to one another. God is all wrath. He is all love. He is all grace. He is all mercy, all at the same time. You follow? You got to think about it a while. God is love. God is wrath. God is mercy. God is gracious. God is kind. God is good. God is wise. I can't split off the wisdom piece of God and still have God because God is not, he's not the sum of a bunch of parts. He's all of those parts all together in full expression. All right? You can't split God apart. So what enables God to give me grace is that the penalty has been paid. And now God can extend grace to me. Now, is that part of his plan from eternity past? Yeah. But that's what enables him to give me grace. And Alan, does the grace exist in the old? Yeah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, remember? Now, in what way did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Because he believed. He believed. Yeah. Here's the thing. Salvation in any era of human history, from Adam all the way to the end, is by God's grace, right? For by grace are you saved. 
It doesn't matter whether you're Adam all the way to the last person that believes. It's always by grace. How is that grace from the human, human perspective? How do we appropriate that grace? From the human perspective, how is it that I appropriate the grace of God? I believe. I believe. What do I believe? Now we do. Whatever God told us. What did God tell Abraham? Go kill your son. But also before that, he said, leave your father's house and go to a land I will show you. And Abraham did what? He left. Did Abraham understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No, he had no idea. He knew that vaguely something was going to happen, but what it was, he had no idea. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God told him to do what? Build a boat. And what did he do? Okay, I'll, I'll build a boat. God told Abel, I want you to bring, and Cain, I want you to bring a sacrifice. What did Abel do? Okay, I'll bring a sacrifice. See, salvation is always by grace, but that grace is appropriated from our perspective by us believing what God told us. Whatever he's told us, we believe that. What did Rahab believe? She said, listen, we heard what happened to the Egyptians 40 years ago. Um, we're scared, and uh, I want to be on your side. That was the extent of her theological knowledge. But what was she, what was she willing to do? Act on it. Now, ultimately, God's... Ultimately, who do I have faith in? Ultimately, who, what's the ultimate object of faith? Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for my sins. But you always, it's always by God's grace. And Paul is saying, we have received grace. In what sense have we received grace? Because Christ died for my sins. He paid the penalty. And that enables God to lavish his grace upon me. Because the penalty has been paid. Somebody took my place. And there are people that say, well, God could just give grace whether there's a penalty paid or not. No, he can't because of the simplicity of God. All of his attributes are in perfect balance. You can't, he, he can't not be wrathful against sin. He can't say, I'm going I'm to split the wrath piece of me off and I'm not going to do that today. You've got to think about this. But God can't suspend what he is. And it says here, not only have I received grace, but I have received, we have received apostleship. Now, this is apostleship with a little a, not the big A. God has not only given me grace, but what else has he given me? Apostleship, what does that mean, do you think? Apostleship for the obedience of faith. What is apostleship? What does an apostle do? He represents, right? Apostello, to send from. An apostle represents somebody else. Paul's saying, I'm not representing me, I'm representing Jesus. Jesus. I'm representing God. And what do we all represent in our sphere? God. So here's the question for you how, how well are you doing? I wrote a blog article 
last week on my adventure at the Skillet concert. I'm not used to 110 decibel sound. You realize that. By the way, that's louder than a jet engine. I don't know if you knew that. But um, Christian rock band, I mean, this is hard rock. I mean, this is way out of my league, you know, kind of thing. But I got conned into taking a young, huh? I, my best friend's daughter wanted to go, and she wanted somebody to go with her, and her boyfriend couldn't go, so she conned me into doing it. So here I am. I'm the oldest guy probably down on the floor, and, you know, they're just, you know, waving and having a grand old time, and I'm just like, what am I got myself into? But, but here's, here's the thing. We all represent Christ, but we represent him in different ways, to different venues, to different people, don't we? This particular person I went to is in the emo. It's sort of like goth, but it's a colorful goth kind of dress. It's called emo. She has two million followers on TikTok. And she tells people about Christ all the time. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to see me come in here dressed in emo with spiked hair. Well, I don't have any hair to spike, but with spiked hair and earrings and tats all over me. And I, I wouldn't get... I wouldn't be able to get within 100 miles of that group. But what is she able to do? She reaches people that won't even give me the time of day. And the whole point of this blog article is you are, all of us, are affecting people around us. And as a Christian, we're either drawing them to Christ or we're pushing them away from Christ by the way we respond and act. The way we respond and act on our social media presence. Are you drawing people to Christ? Are you pushing them away? That's why, you know, I don't make any political commentary on social media. It's just, it's not worth it. I have strong political convictions, but I'm not going to voice them on social media. It's not worth You take a raw steak and throw it to a pack of hungry dogs. What's going to happen? You might get your arm back if you're lucky. It ain't worth it. But we're drawing people to Christ or we're pushing people away. Paul is saying we have received an apostleship. Not only received the grace of God in that we're, our sins are forgiven, but now we've, been a, we've received a commission from him. To do what? To tell others about him. In our sphere, wherever sphere that is, however we do that, we all have influence. And I've often thought when people, you know, when I interact with somebody, are they more likely drawn to Christ or are they pushed away from them? If I respond negatively to things around me, what does that say about Christ? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have your standard. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. All right? But I have some friends in my, in my sphere that are gay. What do I do? You love them. I don't compromise. They know where I stand. I'm not going to give up on that. But I'm not going to, every time I see them, say, oh, you, you God forsaken, you damn naughty way to hell. You know, all that. Yeah, come on. All right. That's not going to help any. Could Christ have done that? Oh, my. He, and by the way, he was right on everything, wasn't he? But he didn't do that. 
And when James and John said, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and smoke these guys for you know, dissing us in this town, Christ said, whoa, hold it, boys. Stop. Slow down. Yeah. By the way, I listened to a great message this week by John MacArthur. I'm sorry. We know that. But it's on, it was on the, um, the parables of the kingdom. It was really, but it, it really struck me this week because he was talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares. What is our responsibility in that parable of the wheat and the tares? What is the responsibility of the workers in the field? We're to sow, we, we sow the seed, but what else are we to do? Tend it, but where, what are we not to do? Don't pull it out. Why? Why don't we pull it out? We don't know what's good or bad, do we? All right, now let me ask a question. Out there in all the junk going on in the world, do we necessarily know what's good and bad? Necessarily all of the time. So if we go out there and start yanking things out like we would like to maybe do, are there certain politicians you'd like to just beat up? Anybody. People you don't... Are there certain people you just say, I want to, yeah. But you know what? That's not our responsibility, is it? What is our responsibility? I mean, because if we did that, we would be judging book by cover and ripping out folks who really know. And we don't know the wheat and the tares. And by the way, here's the other thing. What may be a tear right now may become what? It may become wheat. You don't know that. Now, who are the executors of God's judgment in that parable? At the end of the age, who does, who does God send out? The angels. They, they have the goods. They know they got it. Our responsibility, and that never stuck me. I said, because I know so many Christians, you know, they, they want to do this and want to do that. And it's like, listen, our job, what did Paul say? I have received an apostleship. To do what? To proclaim the gospel, the good news. To bring about what? Obedience of faith for the sake of his name. I call people to <clears throat> obey what? The gospel. Repent and believe. That's what I'm calling somebody to do. It's not my responsibility to change their political party or get them on board with some movement I'm part of. What is it? It's to bring them to Christ. Bring them to salvation. Obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And I think the word there, I have to look it up in my Greek text. I think it's peoples. Now to the Jew, who was God's people? We are. God created all the Gentiles as fuel for hell, but we're in. Paul's saying, listen, this gospel goes to who? Everyone. What did Christ say? I want you to be witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. He did not say, I want you to just be witnesses to me in Judea and stop there. Don't worry about the Samaritans. They're fuel for hell. No, we're to witness to everyone. He says, among all nations... We're to preach. We're, we, here's the thing. Think about this. God has given you and me an apostleship. A commission. 
We became a believer. God says, you're in my army. You now represent me. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, every day, how am I representing Christ in my interactions with everybody around me? Or am I drawing people to Christ? Am I being positive or am I being negative? Am I pushing people away or drawing them to? Am I making God look good? That's a good one. Or making God look good? Because I receive an apostleship to bring about the obedience to the faith for, all the, for the sake of his name among all the peoples, including, listen, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You were called to belong to him. We're going to talk about this in detail later. But God calls us to himself. And I've received an apostleship. I received a commissioning. Now, yeah, I'm the apostle with a big A. We're all apostles with little A's, but we've all been commissioned by Christ to be a representative. And think about that. In your job, wherever, whatever job you're in, you represent Christ. In my working years at Moen Incorporated, I realized I represent Christ here. If I'm a bad employee, what does that say about Christ? Christ. I got a bad Christ. So if I want to be a witness for Christ, what do I need to do? I need to be a good employee, evangelist, in the sphere that I'm in. And by the way, God's given all of us different spheres, right? Some people say, man, I, you know, it's so hard. I'm the only Christian at work. I said, well, that's awesome. God trusts you with that whole group. He trusts you to be there. Wherever you're at, we are to represent Christ. And what we're finding in our culture today, I think, it's so easy to be drawn to so many other things, to represent so many things other than what we're supposed to represent. A big one is politics or movements or are you vaxxed or not vaxxed? Are you this or that? Or, I mean, on and on and on it goes. Pick one. It's not getting any better, folks. But who do we represent? We represent Christ. And again, I, I did a... I talk about my, I have a perspective called a video blog I do. I actually video it at my home, and I, it's a sort of video blog kind of thing. You can find it out there on my website. But one of the ones I did is I, I came to the conclusion, and my social media presence and whatever, I can represent Christ or I can represent something else, but I can't represent both. I can't represent both. I may be pro-NRA, but I can't represent that on Facebook. I can't do that, because what happens? It's divisive. it's divisive. I have a bunch of my Christian men, yeah, 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 and I will say, oh, you're horrible. But the point is not that. The point is, is that really the, the, the thing I'm supposed to burn my energy on? No. And it's so easy, because we have strong feelings on things, it's so easy for us to be sucked into that world. Stay away from it. Back, you know, when you're, when you're ready to send that post, stop, back away slowly, and just don't do it. What Paul's trying to get at here, I think, and, and by the way, they had the same issues back in his day. He says, I'm here to represent Christ above all else. That's what my apostleship is. 
It's not to represent other things. And like I said, on my social media presence, I don't represent other things. Even though I have very strong opinions on a lot of things. I don't, I don't voice those. Because I want to represent Christ. When Paul was called into the ministry, he said, I can't represent the Phariseeism I came up with. I can't represent that. I'm representing Christ now. So what is it? what's the message that Christ wants me to give? And that's the message I'm going to give. We've received that. He said, even to you that are called to belong to Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. I'm writing this to all of you in Rome that are saints. Holy ones, set apart. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. That's, that's one of his standard greetings. Grace to you. So, next week we'll pick up with verse 8, hopefully. So, there's another section to read there. 8 through 14. Actually, 8 through 15. Every day. Every day. Read 8 through 15 every day. Because that's the next section we're going to look at. But, um, you know, it went a little long today. I didn't mean to go as long as this is. But, but the whole point here is, listen, think about this. You represent Christ. And every interaction you have with somebody is either going to draw them to him or push them away. How well are you doing in that department? That's something you need to think about. So, all right. Father, thank you again for this day, for teaching us, and for this great word, for the book of Romans. There's so much good stuff here. But um, we thank you that you've given us an apostleship. All of us here are representatives of you. How well are we doing? We need to think about that. When people run into us, they're going to be drawn to Christ in the way we treat them, talk, and act, or we're going to be driven away. Even if we don't mention your name at that time, they're going to form an opinion of how nice a person we are, and that might be the thing that makes them listen to us next time when we talk about you. So just help us to think about that. And again, thank you for this time and for your word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.